Well, open your Bibles back to Mark chapter 10, Mark's 10th chapter, as we continue our study of this presentation of Jesus from Mark. The title this morning is Unexpected Expectations for a Disciple of Jesus. Unexpected Expectations for a Disciple of Jesus. Let me read the four verses, verses 13 through 16, and then we'll go through them verse by verse. Mark 10, verse 13. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms, began blessing them, laying his hands on them. I've been reading an excellent book in my own devotional exercises by Terry Johnson. It's a new book on the attributes of God. It's called The Identity and Attributes of God. And it has many wonderful takeaways that I would, I would encourage you to read. Um, uh, spoiler alert, it will be on our list of recommended resources for next year. But in reading that, I, I, I've come away page after page amazed and one of my initial takeaways from looking at the existence and the attributes and the identity of God from Johnson's pen is to remember that God is utterly unlike us. And to remember that my problems in understanding God are all traced back to my thinking God is like me. To understand God better to get to know him more closely and more clearly and more accurately, I'm convinced is to be continually surprised and amazed by what he's like. In short, to know God is to be surprised and to be amazed day in and day out. Shouldn't surprise us. <clears throat> Isaiah says in Isaiah 55, quoting God, Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways, not your ways, declares the Lord. As far as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways are higher than yours and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God is fundamentally different than us. But our problem, my problem, your problem, is that we tend to come to God intuitively. We think we know what God is like because we know our own hearts, or at least we think we do. Remember that, that passage at the end of Psalm 50 where God is indicting the Israelites. He says, your problem is you thought I was like you. So when God took on flesh and bone, becoming a human... Jesus the Nazarene, we should anticipate that his words, 
his thoughts, his ways, his teaching, his expectations would be counterintuitive to the way we think. And upon study, you'll find out that they are. That was exactly the case with Jesus, God in flesh. The next memory here in Mark 10 that that the, uh, the writer records in his gospel is another example of how different Jesus is than us, how unexpected he was to his disciples, how his teaching came out of left field to them. How gloriously more gracious he is to every believer and would-be believer than they would have thought. Jesus has just rebuked the Pharisees for their wrong understanding of marriage and divorce and remarriage. Basically telling them the way you think is not the way God thinks. The way you're interpreting scripture is not the clear presentation of scripture. You're thinking earthly, pharisaical thoughts. After dealing with those Pharisees who tried to trap him with that question about divorce, now Mark turns the corner very interestingly, very cleverly, geniusly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And following that encounter with the Pharisees shows us a contrasting group coming to him for an altogether different reason. The Pharisees came wanting to trap him. And now a group of parents come wanting him to bless them. They brought their most precious commodities, their most precious relationships. They brought their babies and their children The story illustrates that some come to Jesus with skepticism and doubt and antagonism. That was the Pharisees. And others come with desperation, desire, and reception. This little story, by the way, is so wonderfully sandwiched between the confrontation of the Pharisees with Jesus and Jesus' reordering of the rich young ruler's thoughts about salvation and eternal life. And right in between is this hinge where Jesus deals with infants. We're going to unpack it together, and I think the story will disclose for us two unanticipated realities concerning access to Jesus. Two unanticipated expectations, realities rather, concerning access to Jesus. The first is in verses 13 to 14a, mistaken expectations about access to Jesus. Mistaken expectations about access to Jesus. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. There's several characters in this story, if you were to, uh, to get a plot line and, you know, as the beginning of a Shakespearean play, they typically have all of the, the characters and who they are. Well, right here in the first, you find three of the most important characters in this little situation. They, that were parents, those parents, children, those were the ones coming in their arms, and Jesus, because they wanted him to touch them and bless them. Mark doesn't tell us anything about the people bringing these children or the circumstances for which they brought them. He doesn't tell us if they were in Perea right after this event. Luke uh, has a shorter version of this. He doesn't identify the, the exact location. This is just strategically put right after the confrontation of the Pharisees. I think it probably happened pretty soon. It could have happened that day. 
It was a common practice to ask a rabbi, a a teacher, or even a prophet to administer a blessing to someone by touching them. And this seems to be the case with the people here who were likely parents bringing little ones for Jesus to offer them a blessing. We also don't know much about these children, but we know something about their age. Mark uses an interesting Greek word, paideia, children. It's a general word for for offspring or children. There's another word, techna, that we'll find uh, later in this chapter. But I think it's interesting when you compare this account with Luke's recording of this account. Luke chapter 18, verse 15, he uses a different Greek word. Now, the word paideia can refer to any age child. Luke uses a more specific word that means that refers to unborn babies, newborns, or young infants. Babies, in other words. Brephos. So we find out from Luke, <clears throat> these are parents bringing babies, infants, maybe up to toddlers, to Jesus for Jesus to bless them. The fact that verse 16 tells us that Jesus took these little ones up in his arms is telling. That verb, up in his arms, is translated, took them into the caress of his arms. It's a compound verb that means to enfold into one's arms. It was used of a mother who would nurse a child. So you put all that together and and you come out with the fact that these were probably little infants unable to walk, brought to Jesus for a blessing. What I find interesting about this this story is not what's there, but as much what's not told to us. Sometimes when you you apply hermeneutical uh, uh, tools to a passage to interpret what it means, you see what's there, but you also ask, what does it not say? What is not being communicated here? Nothing was said about the spiritual condition of the parents. We don't know if they were Jews or or Greeks. We don't know if they were uh, law-following citizens of the kingdom of God. We don't know if they were just bystanders who who were there listening to an argument with Jesus and the Pharisees. We don't know anything about them at all, just the they. That's all they're called, they. The children's faith was also a non-issue because infants can't believe. Such children are not conscious and have no ability to choose to believe or to disregard the Lord. They cannot receive salvation truth, nor can they reject it. And I think that's telling. That's the point that Jesus is raising about these little ones. They could not receive salvation, nor could they reject it. So you have this situation where these parents are bringing these little ones to Jesus, wanting him to touch and bless them. Look at the last phrase in verse 13. But our friends, the disciples, rebuked the parents. That has to be the object of them. I can't see the disciples rebuking the infants. The disciples come after these parents. Now, a lot is between verse 13 and 14 that we're not told. What looks were exchanged? Were there further words given? Were the parents describing anything? Jesus rebukes them. The disciples rebukes them, rather. 
Why? Why would the disciples be rebuking these parents who are bringing the children to Jesus for a blessing? Before you answer that, look at the next phrase. But when Jesus saw their rebuke, he was indignant. As we've traveled with the Lord all around Galilee and now down in Perea, just to the the south and the east of Jerusalem, the Lord and his disciples have made their way to a group of people who have heard of him. Some had seen him, some for the first time, but they'd no doubt heard of him. And these men had been heavily influenced by their Jewish upbringing. And we see that over and over and over. They, they misunderstood Jesus' message. They misunderstood his identity because they brought their Jewish upbringing into play as they were trying to interpret the Lord and who he was. They wanted nothing to do with these parents' passionate desire to have Jesus bless their children. Why? Because they were bothering the Lord. In other words, Jesus has far more important people to deal with and far more important things to do than to bless your babies. They must have viewed these children and their parents as unnecessary and unwanted interruptions in the Lord's work. Just think about that. They thought that there were unnecessary, unwarranted unwanted interruptions in Jesus' life and ministry. The story's gonna tell us. Jesus has never been interrupted or bothered by anyone without his sovereign love and control being involved in that situation. So they issue this rebuke to the parents It's an interesting Greek word. I don't want to bore you with Greek, but this is interesting. Um, Epitamao. Tamao would have been enough. Epitamao. They severely scolded them. There's the idea of emotional anger. What are you doing bringing these babies to the Lord? It's a strong verb. To censure, to reprimand. Interestingly, the noun form of that is translated punishment. In 2 Corinthians 2.6. Mark uses this same word, by the way, to describe Jesus' rebuke of demons in Mark 1.25 and 3.12, His rebuke of the storm, when he rebuked the storm, he did this same intensive rebuke. Epitamao and the Lord's subsequent rebuke of Peter in 8.33. The crowd's rebuke of a blind man who kept calling out to Jesus. We'll see in chapter 10, verse 48. Mark used this word quite a bit. But this word here applies to the disciples taking their own self-importance and authority and slamming these parents for bringing their little ones to Jesus. All to say that this word shows that Jesus was rightfully agitated and angry. Look at that next phrase. He responds indignantly. Indignantly. Jesus does not join the disciples in rebuking the parents who brought the children to him. 
He doesn't say, you guys are right. I'm bothered. Leave them away. I have to get to Jerusalem. Verse 14 records the only account in the gospel record, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, the only time where Jesus is said to be indignant, angry at the men. Now, this is a righteous anger. This is not sinful anger like you and I would want. Righteous anger is when we get animated about God's standard and God's heart in defense against evildoers and evil doing. Not sinful anger where we're looking after our own interests. You know, there's just a little side. What, what makes a person angry tells you a lot about a person's heart. What makes you angry is very telling about your priorities, your values, your spiritual maturity. And in this passage, Jesus' anger reveals to us his compassion and defense of the helpless, vulnerable, and powerless. So he says, let the children come to me. Let the children come to me. Permit them to come. Do not hinder them. Instead of distancing the children from himself, he, he's going to actually use them as an illustration to unplug the disciples' wrongful understanding of themselves and of any potential kingdom citizen. Look at the text for a second. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, permit the children to come to me, do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who can talk about who belongs to the kingdom except the king? Do you see the, the subtle but obvious accent that Jesus is the king and defines the citizens and the values of his kingdom? When you put this passage alongside what Mark records in chapter 9, verse 37, the logic is important. A disciple of Jesus is not only to receive the least of these like children, but also to become like the least of these, like a child, like an infant. The disciples had mistaken the expectations that Jesus, about what it meant to have access to Jesus. They had redefined it. They were doing it on their own terms. They had become his agents. He was gonna, they were gonna be the ones who brokered deals with getting together with Jesus. Remember, we're gonna find out really soon they're gonna argue about who sits on the right and left hand of Jesus when he's the king on the throne. And they were the brokers. They were the secretaries of Jesus. They were the ones who were organizing who had access and who did not. And Jesus just rushes through their office and says, actually, I will define who has access to me. They've mistaken expectations about access to Jesus, which brings us now to explain a little further. Number two, unexpected ex expectations about access to Jesus. Mistaken expectations, they were wrong. Now unexpected, as he says, what it means to have access to them. They weren't expecting this at all. This was out of left field to them. And he said to them, who is the them? The them is the disciples. This must have been a surprise. I mean, just picture this. A group of parents 
Perhaps mothers holding their little infants, coming to Jesus, wanting him to hold them and touch them and bless them. The disciples rebuke this group of, of, of parents and Jesus comes up and I think they probably fully expected him to join them in rebuking these parents. And he speaks to the disciples. They had confronted these parents for bringing the little ones to Jesus. Now Jesus confronts the disciples for their confrontation. The them are the disciples. Again, we're not told why the disciples rebuked those who brought the children. It's not stated. But I probably, I think it's not hard to say that they considered them a bother and an inconvenience and a distraction to the Lord. Too insignificant. Jesus had bigger things to deal with and more important people to talk to, but the Lord's words must have humbled and embarrassed the disciples before that crowd. This was done in the earshot of the crowd standing there. There's nothing that says, Mark is so clear when Jesus took his disciples away privately because he says Jesus took his disciples away privately. (laughs) This was not then. He says this in front of the whole crowd. Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. A twofold command here. Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. It's a double intensive. Let them come and don't stop them from coming. It's both sides of the same coin. They were failing on both accounts. They were not only disallowing access to Jesus, they were actually rebuking the parents and hindering their access to Jesus with their little children. They may have thought, these kids can't appreciate Jesus' teaching. They, can't, they, they, they don't have a need for the Savior, but more, people do, more important people do, so we're going to get to them. Then Jesus says something that would have been unexpected and an unexpected expectation about the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God belongs to ones such as these. Wow, that's interesting. He looks at babies and says, the kingdom of God belongs to people like that. Now, just a little side note and footnote. There have been many of our um, friends who baptize babies who've used this verse over the years to say, this is why you baptize babies. Um, that, that's not in play here. The word baptism is not in the passage. He's not talking about this is the, 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 the faith that they have. He's saying there's something about them that characterizes kingdom citizens. They're an illustration. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The very people the disciples were quarantining from Jesus were about to be examples of those who could inherit the kingdom of God or to be more specific, those who could be saved. Just think about this. Look at the scene in your mind. The disciples must have immediately wondered what in the world the Lord meant. Jesus was a master illustrator. They had never heard him say, the kingdom of God belongs to people like babies. Was that other babies? No, it was the disciples themselves he was targeting. What would he be talking about? Verse 15 tells us. 
Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What is that talking about? It begins with the English phrase, truly, I say to you. You know what that word is in the Greek? Amen. Amen. Let it be considered truthful or true, truly. Jesus introduces important statements all throughout the gospels and pronouncements with with this word, amen. Listen up, it's true. And here is no exception. It's a strong warning about how one could possibly miss the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive will not inherit. Those are strong words. This is an explanation of who might be left out of eternity with God through Christ in heaven. This is important stuff. He tells the disciples to allow these literal babies to come to him. But the reason is that they belong to and illustrate a broader category, which he identifies as such as these, who are the ones who matter to God. Such as these, that's the target of the teaching, not the babies themselves. What is it that Jesus is highlighting about these babies? Now, just to share with you a little bit of of what what it's like to study some of these issues. All week I was wrestling with this passage and studying and reading commentary after commentary after commentary. And I read so many wonderful descriptions of babies and said, this is how you're supposed to be like. I don't think that's the point that Jesus is making here. I remember one went on for pages about how innocent babies are. Well, they haven't committed overt sin yet, but just watch them for a few months and check out that theory of innocence. I think what he's saying is what they do not have. They don't have any presumption. They don't have any sense of deservedness. They are completely and totally dependent. They have no independence. They are characterized by humility and dependency. That's the point. And even though children, particularly infants, are often praised and adored for their humility and sometimes for their innocence and their their cuteness, Jesus doesn't appear to commend them for any qualities at all. He just says, receive the kingdom like them. How can you receive the kingdom like a child who cannot receive the kingdom? That's the point. Utter incapability. I think this story, the accent in the story, the accent falls on the children themselves, not their virtue, either real or imagined, but their utter inability and dependency. Jesus says the kingdom comes to those who are utterly dependent, helpless, in desperate need. Said another way, human babies are not like many in the animal kingdom. Some in the animal kingdom can, are able to live and function and just move on uh, right away. They can walk. Um, I was uh, watching a fascinating um, documentary a few weeks ago about giraffes, how, how quickly a newborn giraffe is up and walking and running. Uh, that's not like human babies. If you leave a human baby by itself, it will die. 
That's the point. They're utterly dependent. As I said, the Greek word here is for little children. It's a diminutive, and Luke says it's a, it's a baby. And it points to the reality that these children are way below the age of accountability. They don't have any decision-making processes at all. So how can they, how should we receive the kingdom like they receive the kingdom? Too young to believe the gospel, utterly unable. That's the point. It's completely a work of God. The problem is not what the children possess, but what they do not possess. And Mark's account of the disciples repeatedly shows that these disciples were just like you and I are. They are far from innocent, far from teachable, slow to believe, even disbelieving, even cowardly, even theologically misinformed. But in this scene, Jesus does not bless the children for their virtues. He, they are blessed for what they lack. They are blessed by his gracious disposition. They're small, unsophisticated, trusting, powerless, and oftentimes even overlooked. <clears throat> James Edwards writes this. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credits, no clout, and no claims. A little child has absolutely nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the basis of sheer neediness rather than by any merit in him or herself. Little children are paradigmatic disciples for only empty hands can be filled, end quote. That's really good. Only empty hands can be filled. He rebukes the disciples, says, instead of preventing them from coming to me, they are actually examples of the way all disciples should be, the ones who receive the kingdom. Utterly dependent, completely helpless, in desperate need of God's intervention. So what does he do in verse 16? He took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying hands on on them. As I said earlier, this, this, this phrase in the original for took him in their arms means to hold an infant, to cuddle. It's used of nursing moms. Just, this is incredible for Jesus. This would have been so out of the norm for Jesus. But so was his touch in so many other areas. Remember, he laid his hands on the sick. No fear of getting sick. The leprous no fear of getting leprosy. The unclean, no fear of being ceremonially deemed unclean. Foreigners, that was beyond the commandment in ancient Judaism. Women and here children. These were the overlooked and the underappreciated in society. And one of the things Jesus, I think, is, is laying as a foundation here is that true Christianity has no um, similarity to our, our modern society or the way we look at people. Um, the value system isn't applied to people the same way that we do. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing every time I think about it, but when I was <clears throat> in high school, I went to a, a Christian athletes conference 
And uh, one of the things that they told us in a breakout session was that one of the strategies, you've heard this before, in, in, in evangelism for high schoolers is go back and make sure you find the captains on the athletic teams, the, the, uh, the, the leaders of the cheerleaders, uh, the, the, the head person in the band. If you can get them to know Christ, then it will, it will flow downstream to everyone that they have influence over. This is the exact opposite lesson. This is the lesson that Jesus looks first to the overlooked, first to the neediest, not the most capable. Jesus calls sinners who are utterly dependent, desperately needy, and entirely incapable of helping themselves be saved. Can I say that again? That's the point of this passage. Jesus calls sinners who are utterly dependent, that's you and me, desperately needy, that's you and me, and entirely incapable of helping ourselves or themselves be saved. James Brooks provides these helpful words. The main point of comparison probably is the insignificance, weakness, helplessness, and dependency shared by children in the ancient society as those who enter the kingdom at any time. The ultimate focus of the passage is not on the attitude with which one comes to Jesus, but on coming to Jesus as the object of one's faith. He is the one who initiates. He is the one who saves. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who glorifies. This was unexpected. Now, I, I, can't, I can't resist and I can't help. We looked back at the, the disciples watching Jesus confront the Pharisees, them trying to trap him. We have this story of Jesus and the babies. Now we have the rich young ruler coming up, but look across the page at the end of the rich young ruler's um, uh, story, and we'll get into this in our next study. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered and said to them, children, that's technon, that's a general word for any child. You don't think that's important that Mark follows this up to the other story? Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's the exact issue. He answers, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, who can be saved? That's the question that this story raises that the rich young ruler story will answer because here he really says, with people, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Do, do you see the genius logic of the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark to put these together where those Pharisees have their own ideas? He says, that's wrong. You're not, you're not paying attention to Scripture. These children have no idea. They can't do anything. He says, be like them. And then he turns to the disciples after talking to a man who thought he could work himself to heaven and says, it's impossible without God. These three work like hinges together to teach the same principle. Can I show you two quick pictures of what Jesus is talking about? To be very specific that Paul picks up on and he describes. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. 
Paul says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Again, man's thinking versus God's thinking. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The way people think is not the way God thinks. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, no one thought themselves to heaven God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. He's talking tongue in cheek saying, people think this is foolish. God uses what people think is foolish as the way to bring people into his kingdom. For indeed, the Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, that's all of us, Christ, the power of of God and the wisdom of God. Because, listen, the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he says this. Think of being like an infant, like a helpless and unable infant. Consider your calling, brothers. There were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many noble, not many mighty, But God has chosen the weak, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. And he's chosen the things that are not that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. That's the same point. And he says in verse 30, by his doing, You are in Christ Jesus by his doing. Romans 5, listen to this. The four descriptions of you and me, Romans 5, 6, for while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, shall we be saved from the wrath of God through him? For if we were enemies with God, God reconciled us. Paul says the same thing that Jesus is illustrating. We are Helpless, ungodly, sinners, enemies, not many wise, not many noble. God saved us. This morning before church, I was able to hold uh, Shane and Maggie Singleton's little three-month-old Michael. Just a precious moment. I remember being with them years ago when we were praying that the Lord would grant them a little one. You can imagine what was going through my head having studied this all week, looking at this little three-month-old, thinking, cute, adorable, smiling. He smiled at me, by the way. Um, Might have been gas, but anyway, he smiled at me. And just looking at this little one and imagining Jesus taking one like this in his arms and saying, this is how you're supposed to be to me. Which means that this is how he is to those who are utterly unable, 
incapable, unwilling, he brings us that close. What a God. The coos and the smiles on little Michael's face were precious, yes, but even more significant was how utterly dependent he is on his parents and even on me in that moment. It's a picture of us. We come to Jesus with nothing to offer. He receives us because of our condition of having nothing to offer. There's no self-righteousness, no credit, no skills, no talents, nothing to offer him, except this is our contribution. Are you ready for this? We gave Jesus the sin for which he had to die. That's our offering. And still he died for us. What are the takeaways? Well, can we just remember, first of all, that Jesus is never bothered by our desperate needs? Jesus is a never bothered Savior. He is a never bothered Savior. He is a never bothered God. You have never come to Him, either in salvation or in any prayer moment. You have never come to Him where He felt bothered or He had to take care of things in Afghanistan or Russia or China or the White House or the Kremlin. No, no. We're never a bother. Jesus is never bothered by desperate needs. Secondly, the Lord's acceptance pictures the reality that salvation is by grace alone. The Lord's acceptance of these children, these infants who couldn't do anything, they couldn't even believe, his acceptance of them pictures the reality that salvation is completely by grace alone. The power of God alone saves us. Number three, this one's really sweet. Our ministry must be faithful to give children access to Jesus. As a church and also for you as parents. Our ministry as parents, as a church, must be faithful to give our children access to Jesus, to instruction about Jesus, to encouragement by Jesus, to stories about Jesus, to explanation of Jesus, the way of salvation. This applies to the church and to parents also. We should not be like the disciples who thought children were inaccessible to the Lord. And can I just say how grateful I am again that Mission Road Bible Church has such a passion to minister to children. So when you get that, that call to serve in the nursery where you're not gonna get an attaboy or thank you, ma'am, or th- that is a way that we are, exp- we are becoming like God. Imitate God. We imitate God in that we give the helpless help You say, does that really apply to the nursery? I think it does. It applies to you moms at home giving such wonderful care to kids who are just giving you grief and making messes. Praise God for you. Be a conduit, a pathway to Jesus. And number four, we must be mindful to minister to anyone and everyone, even what Jesus calls the least of these. We must be mindful to minister to anyone and to everyone, 
even the least of these, where the disciples said there are people, there are categories, even infants, even babies, who, are, who need to be outside of the ministry of Jesus. We should see no one, young or old, based on anything as beyond the reach of Jesus. Our goal is different than the disciples in this moment. They were trying to restrict access to Jesus. You know what the disciple of Christ's goal is? To invite access to Jesus. That's the Great Commission. Boy, I hope you've taken advantage of that access. That you know him as your Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, your friend who has reached down and plucked you out of the leaping fires of hell that may be leaping at your feet now but will consume you one day unless you repent and receive him. Faith and trust and assurance and believe the good news that he died for your sin, he rose from the grave and he offers you eternal life. What a God. So what's the takeaway in the end? Be like a baby. <laughs> be like a baby. You know why? Because you are. And the kingdom comes to the utterly and unable and incapable wicked sinners like you and me. And he does it all. By his doing, Paul said, you are saved. Praise God.